Good morning. If you will, turn in your Bibles to Exodus 32. I thought it was really cute that Caleb said we've been in Exodus for a couple weeks now. Yep, it's only been a couple of weeks. And we only got a couple weeks more. (laughs) Exodus 32. Once you arrive there, if you would, stand for the reading of God's Word. We will read verses 15 through 35. Starting verse 15, then Moses turned and went down from the mountain with the two tablets, the testimony in his hand, tablets that were written on both sides, on the front and on the back they were written, the tablets that were the work of God, and the writing was the writing of God engraved on the tablets. When Joshua heard the noise of the people as they shouted, he said to Moses, there is a noise of war in the camp. But he said, it is not the sound of shouting for victory or the sound of the cry of defeat, but the sound of singing that I hear. And as soon as he came near the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, Moses' anger burned hot. And he threw the tablets out of his hand and broke them at the foot of the mountain. He took the calf that they had made and burned it with fire and ground it to powder and scattered it on the water and made the people of Israel drink it. And Moses said to Aaron, what did this people do to you that you brought such a great sin upon them? And Aaron said, Let not the anger of my Lord burn hot. You know the people. They were set on evil. For they said to me, Make us gods who shall go up before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So I said to them, Let any who have gold take it off. So they gave it to me, and I threw it into the fire, and out came this calf. And when Moses saw that the people had broken loose, for Aaron had let them break loose to the derision of their enemies, Then Moses stood in the gate of the camp and said, Who is on the Lord's side? Come to me. And all the sons of Levi gathered around him. And he said to them, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Put your sword on your side, each of you, and go to and fro from gate to gate throughout the camp. And each of you kill his brother and his companion and his neighbor. And the sons of Levi Levi did according to the word of Moses. And that day about 3,000 men of the people fell. And Moses said, Today you have been ordained for the service of the Lord, each one at the cost of his son and of his brother, so that he might bestow a blessing upon you this day. Next day, Moses said to the people, You have sinned a great sin, and now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. So Moses returned to the people, to the Lord, and said, Alas, this people has sinned a great sin. They have made for themselves gods of gold, but now if you will forgive their sin, But if not, please blot me out of your book that you have written. But the Lord said to Moses, Whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. But now, go, lead the people to the place about which I have spoken to you. Behold, my angel shall go before you. Nevertheless, in the day when I visit, I will visit their sin upon them. Then the Lord sent a plague on the people because they made the calf, the one that Aaron made. Let's pray. Lord, this is your word. We thank you, O God, for it. By your spirit at work in us, God, edify us. Lord, make us more like Christ. Grow us in the grace and knowledge of Jesus. Give us a greater passion of bringing the good news to all nations, God. That is our desire, to see you magnified, Lord. And before doing that, we want to deal with our own sin. 
and realize that our sin has consequences. So I pray, God, this morning as we hear your word, convict us of sin, God. Bring it to the forefront of our minds so that we might put it to, the, to death for, the, for your glory, O oh God, and that we may run to Christ for refuge, for strength, for guidance, that we may depend upon your spirit, God, to guide us into all truth. Lord, I pray, use your word. May it not return void. God, work in our hearts. It's in Christ's name we pray these things. Amen. You may be seated. As Caleb said last week, we worked through the first 14 verses of Exodus 32. And those first 14 verses, just to review for a second, is uh, Israel has just received the instructions about the tabernacle and all that they're supposed to do to be committed to Yahweh. And so then we get Exodus 32, which is like a brick wall where while Moses is up on the mountain and getting the tablets, is that Israel's at the bottom of the mountain and they're impatient and they want, a, they want Yahweh physically represented among them in the form of a calf idol. And so they make that for themselves and they give themselves over to idolatry and all sin and they corrupt themselves. This is what they've done. They fashioned it and they've made an altar to it and they've burned incense and they've worshipped it. And so the Lord gets... As you would know, val- valid, it's, he's angry. He's very angry about this. And that he calls them a stiff-necked people. And he's going to consume them. And he's going to start over with them. But Moses steps in and petitions and intercedes on their behalf. Remember who you are. Remember your promises. Remember everything that you've said. And God, he relents from the disaster that he was going to bring on them. And so that's what Exodus 32, 1-14 is about. And we end on verse 14 and begin verse 15 with this question. Will Israel get off scot-free? Is this the end of this, is this, the end of this episode in some sense? Is, hey, there's resolution. God's not going to consume them. It's done with. Well, as you can see, it's not over, right? As we just read from Exodus 15, Exodus 32, 15-35, the situation's not done with because Israel's sin has consequences for them, as does all of our sin. Sin has consequences. And so the main point of the sermon today, as you see in the title, is sin has consequences. But to quote Paul, the main point is this. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. What Israel has done will have severe consequences on their relationship with the Lord and with one another. And so I want us to look at the first couple of verses here in 15 through 20. And I want you to see how Moses has a righteous anger over what has just occurred here in Israel. A righteous anger. Remember, he's up at the mountain. God tells him what happens and what's going down, you know, what's basically occurring while he's up there. But he still intercedes on their behalf. It's kind of like us. Maybe if you were a kid or maybe your kids called you or maybe somebody from work and they're saying, explaining to you, okay, something bad is happening. And they explain the situation to you. They explain it's chaos. It's havoc here. It's going crazy, everything. And you're like, yeah, it's, it's, that sounds bad. And then you're like, okay, I'll make my way to the office. Or okay, I'm coming home. And then you get there and you're like, this is way worse than I expected, right? Anybody been there? Like, you know, the kid calls you from home. They're like, oh, dad, I did something bad. And I broke something. 
then you get there, oh, it's not a big deal. And then, like, people are hanging from the rafters, and they're, you know, taking, you know, painting all the walls and stuff like that. It's not really as bad when you hear it, but when you see it for yourself firsthand, you're like, this is way worse than I want to hurt it. And that seems to be the situation with Moses right now, is that he heard what God said, yeah, the people are corrupting themselves at the bottom of the mountain, but he's got to see it for himself firsthand. And so what Moses is doing here is he's got the two tablets starting in verse 15. He's got the tablets that are from God that have the testimony and the terms of the covenant and the commitment that they've made to one another. And the emphasis on is that these tablets that have God's words are from God. This is their origin. This is where they come from, as all of God's words. They are from God. Every word that we have in these scriptures are God's words. God has spoken them. And so here, these tablets are from God. That's where their origin is. They are divine in nature because they come from God. But unlike the golden calf, it is not from God. It was made by man. It was fashioned and graved by them. It did not come from God. God did not institute it. God did not declare it. God did not command it. And so these tablets of stone is different from the golden calf. One is from God and one is not from God. As spiritual as the golden calf may look like, as all the burnt offerings and the feast and the, the, the celebration may look spiritual, it may look godly, it may look like it's from God, it's actually not from God at all. And I think there's an important point that we can really make from this is that we can dress up idolatry, we can dress up sin, we can make it look spiritual, we can make it look godly, but it's not from God at all. It's not from God. And on the last day, just as this idol and just as every idol will be, it will be exposed before the judge of all the earth. So as nice as you want to make our idols, our idols look like, as good as we want to make our sin look, God can see straight through it. One thing in this text is from God, and the other thing is not, and that is the golden calf. Moses is already aware of the situation. He's coming down the mountain, but Joshua doesn't know what's going on. Remember in Exodus 24, most of the people stayed at the bottom of the mountain. Joshua and a few others went up the mountain, had a feast with God, and then Moses went to the top. Well, Moses is coming down, and he meets Joshua, and Joshua said, hey, I hear something going down there. And it sounds like uh, victory. We must have had a battle and won down there, right? Man, we must be doing some good stuff, right? I can hear the chance of war. And then they say, I, I think I can hear singing, right? Man. And Moses knows that it has nothing to do with war. It has nothing to do with victory. It has everything to do with sin. Moses hears the singing, and then he comes down, and he sees the dancing, right? They're dancing and they're singing. You remember the last time singing and dancing happened in the book of Exodus? You're like, never? Uh, I don't remember any singing or dancing in the book of Exodus. Exodus 15, right after they're saved out of Egypt, Exodus 15, they sing this great song to the Lord. People are singing. There's tambourines. People are dancing out of, out of worship and celebration for what God has done. Now look at this. People are singing and dancing to an idol right? They've taken the worship that was meant for God and put it on an idol here. They've given the praise of God to things made by our very hands. And so just as God's anger burned against them, if you look in 32 verse 10, you remember that it says that God's anger burned hotly against them. Now in Exodus 32 later on, verse 19, 
Moses' anger is now hot and burning against them, right? Moses is angry. And in his anger, Moses throws down the tablets that he got from God, throws it down at the foot of the mountain and breaks it in the eyes of the Israelites right in front of them. And this is kind of a symbolic act, right? Kind of demonstrating these tablets are breaking before your eyes just as you broke the covenant and commitment with God right here. It would be as if, you know, somebody, you know, uh, we, we used this illustration last week, but a marriage, you know, and there is caught in this marriage a cheating spouse or somebody like that, and they have no words to say to their cheating spouse. All they can do is take the ring off and fling it at the head of that person, right? In their anger, it's a symbolic act saying, this is done. The, the symbol of our commitment to one another, I'm throwing it back at you because you've broken it. And this is what Moses is doing. He's breaking and throwing down these tablets to say, you've ruined this relationship. A similar thing will happen in Zechariah 11 when he talks about, a, talks about basically a limb, and the limb is, is a symbol of the covenant that God has with Israel, and the prophet breaks it before their eyes to say, this is what you've done. You've broken the relationship. And so after Moses shatters these tablets, Moses takes their idol and utterly destroys it. He burns it. He grinds it up into powder. Man, bringing it down to its most finest matter, right? This is what Israel should be doing to idols. They shouldn't be making them. They should be destroying them, right? And you might be like, well, man, Moses is he's not having a good day. He's over, overreacting a little bit, right, over Israel's sin. It's not, it's, not really, it's not that bad, is it? Maybe he's not overreacting. Maybe Moses is acting accurately, reacting accurately to sin. Maybe Moses' response to sin should be our response to sin. You know, we are easy to condemn and to point out the sins of our culture and the sins of the people around us, but very hard to look in the mirror and say, look at the sinner that stands right here. Look at him. Look at her. Is that man, when people say, man, Moses must be overreacting, maybe Moses is reacting just as we should all react to our own sin. Maybe we should hate it just that much. Maybe we should overreact just this much when we sin in our own lives. Maybe Moses isn't overreacting at all. Maybe he's not reacting. Maybe he's not reacting enough to how much and how bad this sin is. But he goes on even further. He grinds this idol up into a fine powder and he throws the dust of it into the water and he makes the people drink it. And I know for all of you are thinking, what is going on, right? Making the people drink it? I think the intent is to show Israel just, just by this kind of like heightened act, just how fragile their idols are, how dangerous their act really is. And let me just say this for Israel. There's probably nobody in Israel right now who will ever forget this day, right? <laughs> yeah, buddy, you remember that day that Moses went crazy on us? and took the idol we made and tore it up and burned it and 
made it into a powder and made us drink it? Man, we'll never do that one again. Like it'll, it will constantly be on their minds. I, don't, I know none of you probably ever experienced this, but I remember, I remember my aunts and uncles would tell me the story about when their parents caught them smoking cigarettes. And maybe if you're back in the old day, what the solution was to teach a kid not to smoke cigarettes was, anybody know? Smoke the whole pack. I know none of you godly people would ever do something like that. But what ultimately that was to teach him was this, is that my aunt, I, you know, when she tells me, she, st- she started throwing up and she started gagging and she started trying to smoke that whole thing. And, and basically she said, I learned my lesson that day, right? She had to smoke that pack of cigarettes. It's something like this is going on here. Israel will never forget the day that Moses took the idol that they made, made it into power, threw it powder and threw it into a, a brook, into a river, and made them drink it, drink their idol. It's funny, Josiah does a very similar thing in the book of 2 Kings. He gets their idols, their Asherah poles, and he, he does the same thing, grinds it down into powder, and he throws it into a brook. But he doesn't just throw it into a brook. He takes the idols that they're, the Israel's, that their fathers made, and their fathers made, and their fathers made, and he takes, he takes their ashes, and he goes and throws it on all their graves. Basically, you know, as you know, in the army or in the navy, you can have your remains, you know, tossed at sea and things like that as a sign of honor and respect. Josiah ain't doing this out of respect. He's putting the remains of the idols on their grave saying, this is your fault. This is what should be done to their idols. They should be destroying them, not making them. And Moses has a righteous anger here, as we all should, over our own sin. We should all hate our sin just as much as we see Moses hating Israel's sin here with idolatry. But one question you have to ask is, what's Aaron doing this whole time? What's he been up to? Moses left him down there, right? Is he just an innocent bystander forced to comply with the crowd's demands, right? I think we'll find something very different out of Aaron. This is point number two. Aaron excuses his sin. We've all heard lame excuses in our lives. I, you know, teachers in here, all who are teachers, would you all raise your hand? You're back in school. You work as an administrator or a teacher or in a school setting in any form. You've probably all heard lame excuses, right? Uh, my dog ate my homework. Um, uh, my alarm didn't go off. Uh, I don't know. I had a kidney transplant last night and couldn't, you know, show up for the test, you know. You, you hear all these lame excuses, and you're like, man, what it's a, what's it going to be this time? And you just roll your eyes, right, teachers? You're like, golly, man, what can kids come up with these days, right? And for Moses, Moses comes down at the bottom of the mountain, sees what they're doing, and says, there has to be a reasonable explanation for what's going on. There has to be a good excuse why Aaron has allowed this to basically develop and evolve into this what is occurring at the foot of the mountain. And so if you look in verse 21, Moses is flabbergasted with Aaron. Moses says, what did this people do to you that you had such, brought such a great sin upon them? These people must have had a gun to your head, Aaron, for you to allow such a crazy thing to happen there. Surely the only way that Aaron has allowed this to happen is because somebody's holding him at gunpoint. That's the only reasonable explanation. But as we see, that is not Aaron's excuse here, is it? Aaron gives 
a number of excuses here for why the situation is as it is. Just look at this. Here, here's what he does. Ultimately, Aaron blames everybody else in these verses. Look at this. And Aaron said, this is verse 22, don't, don't be angry with me, Moses. And then he says, you know the people. They're set on evil. Basically, his excuse is, what do you expect from these terrible people? Like, what do you expect from them? Look, you know these kind of people. They do these kind of things, right? You know them. What, what do you expect from them? They're terrible people. They're just going to do this stuff, right? And so that's his first excuse. Don't, don't you know these people? His second excuse is verse 23. For they said to me, make us God shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we don't know that he's coming. Look, I'm just doing what they asked me to do. Don't shoot the messenger right here. I'm just doing what they asked. They asked me. I said, yeah, I can make it. I'm pretty good at making golden calves. I'll make you one, right? I, look, I'm just innocent bystander in this. I'm just doing what they told me to do, right? I'm just a good employee. I just gave them what they asked for. Next, another excuse is Aaron presents the situation as asking the people for gold. Look at verse 24. So I said to them, let any who have gold take it off. Now, I want you to look back at verse 2 in 32. So Aaron said to them, Take off the rings of gold that are in your ears and your wives and your sons and your daughters and bring them to me. You see the difference in those two verses? Moses or Aaron is presenting him saying, Hey, anybody who has some rings and go bring them to me. And verse 2, it's an imperative, it's a command. Bring me your gold and your earrings so I can make a golden calf. So Aaron is kind of diminishing it. Hey, I just asked and requested for them. I, I didn't, I didn't, but in actuality, he demanded it from them. Last, and I think this is, I think we would all agree, this is Aaron's best excuse. His best excuse. Either he's lying or he is just playing dumb, right? I threw it in the fire and out came a golden calf. Don't know how that happened. That's his excuse. Hey, look, I know what was going to happen. I just took all those earrings that y'all gave me, and I threw them into the fire. Man, I didn't know a golden calf. I was just as amazed as you. What an excuse. And what a lie, right? If you look back in verses 6 and 7, or actually this is verse 4 in 32. It says, and he received the gold from their hand, and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. Now look at here. Aaron's already got the tools to do the job, right? He's fashioning it and he's engraving it with tools. So he might try and dismiss like, hey, all I did was the guy who threw it in there. No, he is actually lying about his responsibility in this whole thing. He actually had a hand in all of this. And Aaron's excuse doesn't fool Moses one bit, right? Verse 25, for Aaron had let them break loose. Verse 35, the calf that Aaron had made. His failed leadership has brought about this great sin in Israel. Aaron is held partially responsible for what has gone on. And Aaron's failed leadership and Israel's sinful hearts have led them to break loose what it says in verse 25. And and when Moses saw that the people had broken loose, for Aaron had let them 
break loose. Meaning that there is no, there's no self-control here in Israel right now. There's no restraint. It's a free-for-all in sin. That's what's going on. It's a snowball, a sin snowball, basically. Everything is just getting worse and worse and worse. This is what Proverbs 29, 18 says. Where there is no prophetic vision, the people cast off restraint. But blessed is he who keeps the law. This sin snowball of them saying, you know, Moses is not here. We don't have a God. Let's just do whatever we want. This is what Romans 1 sounds like. They suppress the truth and unrighteousness, and then it just snowballs and gets worse and worse and worse and worse. And this is what sin does, right? They break loose and they have no restraint. This is Israel. This is Aaron's excuses. And let me just say, since Genesis 3, we're all like Aaron. We've all been pointing the finger at somebody else for our own sin. We've all been pointing the finger at someone else or something else to justify and excuse our sin. Church, let me just say this. We've got to stop doing that. We have to acknowledge our responsibility and accountability for our own sin. And Moses, in this, he calls a spade a spade. It's a great sin what you've done, what you've caused. And so we can't try and dress up our sin, make it sound more digestible, not as bad as it could be or is, not our fault. That's what Aaron did. Okay, it's not really that bad. It's not really my fault, things like that. Sin is treason against a holy God. That's how serious it is. Don't dismiss or hide your sin. Acknowledge it. Repent of it. And God will show you mercy. That's what Proverbs 28, 13 says. Whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper. But who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. Listen to this, church. Whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper. But whoever confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. Look, since Genesis 3, we have all had the inclination to try to hide our sin, to try and dismiss it, to try and discount it, to try and make it sound less than it actually is. Sin is serious because God is serious and holy. Confess your sin. You'll be met with mercy from God. And let me just tell you, this is why God gives the church when someone rightly calls you out, let me emphasize rightly. I'm not saying accuses you of something that you've never done or that you haven't done or anything, but when someone call, rightly calls you out for your sin, don't fight it. Don't get defensive. Don't default to the, what about? What about? That's our favorite word. What about? That's what Aaron's doing here. What about? But what about you? Or what about them? Or what about this? What about that? That's deflection. That's not confession. What about, what about, what about? That's not it. When somebody rightly calls you out for sin, take it as an act of God's grace and mercy to you. It's a good thing. This is what Psalm 141 says. Let a righteous man strike me. It's a kindness. Let him rebuke me. It is oil for my head. Let my head not refuse it. You know what the psalmist is saying? Somebody calls me out when it's right and it's good. Let me see that as a gift to me. To make me more like Jesus. Church, 
We need to be people who are not whatabouts, who are not deflectors, but we're confessors when we are rightly caught out for our sin. I think for most of us in here as a church family, when we call out each other for our sin, it's not to humiliate them. It's not to embarrass them. It's not to make them feel low. It's for our good and for God's glory that we are being sanctified through the church who is saying, hey, I see that sin in your life, and you really need to stop, and you really need to confess that. You really need to repent. You really need to turn away from that sin. Take that as a kindness and a love. Moses returns to see that the house is a wreck from when he left it in Exodus 24. There's trash everywhere. People hanging from chandeliers down there at the bottom of the mountain. The worst part is Israel doesn't even care. They are running wild and free and nobody cares. Everyone is enjoying wrecking the house. So what is Moses going to do? This is point number three. Who was on the Lord's side? The first battle of Bull Run was marked by utter confusion between the two armies because the uniforms were so similar. They looked so much like each other. So they didn't know if they were shooting at friend or foe. It was a total mishap, the first battle of Bull Run. They didn't know if it was a friend or a foe that they were shooting at. And so they were basically saying, Who, Who's on my side? Who's my friend? Who's, who's fighting alongside me? Who, 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 who's on my team? Show yourself in some sense. And this is Moses' call at this climactic point in Exodus 32, in verse 26. Hey, anybody here, who, who's on the Lord's side down here? Don't look like anybody, but I'm just calling you out. Who's on the Lord's side right now? This is Moses' call. He calls, is there anybody down here who wants to follow the Lord? who hasn't given themselves over to idols, who aren't running wild in their sin. And then the sons of Levi step forward as those who identify themselves on the Lord's side. And that's what they do in verses 26 through 29. Who's on the Lord's side? Come to me. This is similar calls that Joshua makes at the end of Joshua 24. You probably know this verse by heart. I remember seeing this verse in my 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 grandparents' house, verse 15 of Joshua 24, and if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve, right? Whether the gods of your father served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell, but as for me and my house, can anybody, we will serve the Lord. Who is on the Lord's side, Joshua says. Who's on the Lord's side? Jesus says the same thing in Luke chapter 11, verse 23. Whoever is not with me is what? Against me. And whoever does not gather with me scatters. Who is on the Lord's side is what Moses is asking. And Moses, what's interesting, he just petitioned. He just interceded. He just advocated for Israel just a couple moments ago when he was up on the mountain. He's the one who says, God, remember this, remember this. Don't consume them. Who Moses has kind of changed his tune here, right? Starting in verse 26. Moses just advocated for Israel. Now, he commissions the sons of Levi and gives them instructions to cleanse the camp and to be dispensers of God's justice. Because idolatry cannot be allowed among Israel. It will corrupt the whole people. A little leaven will what? 
leaven the whole lump, right? The sin cannot be allowed to remain in the camp. So on that day, the Levites went systematically looking for, hey, will you follow the Lord? Hey, will you follow the Lord? Are you going to follow the Lord? Are you going to give up the sin of idolatry? And on that day, 3,000 Israelites died who did not bow their knee to the Lord but chose to serve their idols. This is a heavy scene. One of the heaviest scenes in the Bible. Is this an overreaction by Moses? Is this heavy-handed? Did the punishment really fit the crime, Moses? We might think that Exodus 35, 25-29 is heavy-handed, unfair, or an overreaction. And if we think that, then maybe we don't see just how evil idolatry is and how despicable it is in the eyes of God. One author writes it like this, The seriousness with which Israel takes the matter should occasion critical reflection by those of us who live in an age where virtually anything that goes by the name of religion is tolerated. You know why Exodus 20, verse, verses 25-29 just spark our sensitivities? It's because we live in a world that everything is okay as long as it's got the label Christian on it. You can do whatever. As long as you call it Christian, it's okay. But here in the Bible, we're getting a scene. You can't say that you follow Yahweh and do whatever you want. That's not okay. This punishment is being meted out to Israel through Moses and the Levites, and it's serious. And we get uncomfortable with texts like this one, but we need to remember what God says about Himself. God will keep His Word. God will keep His Word. This is what He warned them in the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20, verse 5. He says this, You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is on the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. God is keeping his word. If he doesn't do anything about this, God is a liar. And what we're reading for the rest of the Bible, God does not lie. He cannot. Jonah Chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. God is keeping His Word here in Exodus 32, 25-29. Next, we have to believe this about this scene. Not only does God keep His Word, but God is righteous and kind and everything that He does is righteous and kind. And that may be so unfamiliar, so obscene in a situation like this. But God has not given up this characteristic about Himself that He is good and He is kind and everything that He does is righteous. Psalm 145, 17 says this, The Lord is righteous in all His ways and kind in all His works. Let me just ask you to think for this a second. Does Psalm 145, 17 apply to Exodus 32, 25-29? The Lord is righteous in all His ways and kind in all His works. Does this apply? Or does God take a back seat right here and say, I'm not going to be kind right now. I'm not going to be righteous right now. No. Psalm 145, 17 applies to Exodus 32, 
25 through 29, that even in the death of these idolaters, God is righteous and He is kind. Church, I think the question that Moses asked of the people of Israel is the same question that can be asked of you today. Who is on the Lord's side? How do I know if I'm on the Lord's side? Will you obey the Lord's instructions? Are you on the Lord's side today? Will you be found to be on the Lord's side on the last day? That is a question that we must all ponder. Are you on the Lord's side? And the way that you know this is that you obey His instructions. But as we began, there are consequences to their sin as we're seeing here. And Israel will be held accountable for their sin. This is point number four, our last point. Israel is held accountable. After cleansing the camp, Moses tells Israel that he is going back up the mountain to try and make atonement for their great sin. Man, Moses has got to be thinking, y'all really did it this time, right? This is why Moses says in verse 30, perhaps I can make atonement. Perhaps. Perhaps I can go up there and make atonement for what you've just did. And I think that's an interesting phrase for Moses to say. Because when Moses says, perhaps I can make atonement, Moses is acknowledging that God is merciful. God is gracious. God is forgiving. But God is also just and will keep his word. Right? He's righteous and just. And so Moses, nor Israel, can presume on God's grace and mercy, thinking that he won't do anything about what they've just done. He'll just spare them because that's who he is and that's who we are, his people. As one man said on his deathbed, a man said this, God will forgive me. That's his job. God will forgive me. That's that's what he's supposed to do. That's his job. That's presuming on God's grace and mercy to think that I can live a life of rebellion and disobedience and that God's just going to give me what I want because that's what He's supposed to do. That's presuming on God's grace and kindness. God's kindness and forgiveness shouldn't lead you to more sin. God's kindness and grace and mercy should lead you to repent from sin. Because God is gracious and merciful, it shouldn't lead you to say, I'll just get to do whatever I want. It should lead you to say, I want to give up my sin. I want to put it to death, and I want to run to Christ. This is what Romans 2.4 says this. Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? Why is God being kind to us right now? Why is God kind to us in our sin? It's because he's wanting to show you kindness so that it will lead you to Christ, to repent of your sin. Romans 6.1, if you truly are in Christ, you don't want to sin. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Anybody remember what Paul says? By no means. It's one of the best three words that Paul says. Basically, in our word, are you insane? No. God's grace should lead you to love and obey Him, not to think that you can get away with everything. That's what God's grace does. But Moses intercedes for Israel, asking the Lord that He would forgive them for their idolatry. 
But Moses' intercession takes an interesting turn here in these verses. He said that if the Lord decides not to forgive them, that he would also like to be blotted out of the book. He wants to be removed from God's register of deliverance and receive the same punishment that Israel received from God. Moses is identifying with the people. If they won't be forgiven, I don't want to be forgiven either. Let me be blotted out. God responds and he says this. That's not how this works. That's not how I work. And that's not how this is going to work. God is going to punish those who sinned against them. That's what Exodus 32, 33, and 34 about. God reinforces that idea that sinners, each individual sinner, will be held accountable for their own sin. We are not going to die for the sin of another. We're not going to be held accountable for our parents' sin, our grandparents' sin, our child's sin. We're going to be held accountable for yours. Exodus 18 or Ezekiel 18, verse 20. The soul who sins shall die. The son shall not suffer for the iniquity of the father, nor the father suffer for the iniquity of the son. The righteous of the righteous shall be upon himself, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon himself. You will be held accountable for what you have done in this life. Not for what another person has done for you or to you, you will be held accountable. And that's what God's saying. Moses, you'll be held accountable for your sin. They will be held accountable for their sin. You cannot die on their behalf. God instructs Moses that he's not done with his people. He's going to punish them, but he's not done with them. He's going to still lead them to the land that he's promised them. And that's an act of mercy in itself, right? That God doesn't throw in the towel. But there is discipline for them. He says, I'm going to send my angel before you. Another level, we talked about this last week, another level of distance between God and Israel, right? God's been saying that I'm going to lead you out of this place and I'm going to bring you to this land. Now he says, I'm going to send my angel before you. Another level of distance between them. Because sin will never draw you nearer to God. It will always draw you apart from God. Don't let it convince you otherwise. And then, a plague is sent on them. Y'all remember the last time we talked about plagues in the book of Exodus? I was like 31 at that time, I think. Like, that was so long ago when we talked about the plagues. But now the plagues aren't on Egypt. Who are the plagues on? Israel. Israel's become Egypt in some sense. Just like them. They're hard-hearted, rebellious, resistant. And so Israel has to stand accountable for their sin, just as every one of us will have to stand before the Lord on the last day. 2 Corinthians 5.10 says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Romans 14.10, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. This is us. So what can be done? What can be done? What your response can't be is, I know that I'm going to have to appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Perhaps I can make atonement. Perhaps I can make atonement. Perhaps I can make it right with God. Perhaps I can get all this wiped away. Perhaps I can make an excuse. Perhaps I can give a reason for what I've done on earth. Perhaps I can make it all better. 
That's what Aaron tried to do. He tried to excuse his sin. That's what Moses tried to do. He tried to atone for their sin. It's commendable by Moses. But his ability is insufficient. Look, church, your response can't be when you and me stand before the judgment seat of Christ can't be perhaps I can make atonement. Perhaps I can make it right. If that is your response, God will surely punish you for your sin. And it will be much worse than what you see in Exodus 32. But on that day, you say, I can have assurance because there has been one who has come and he has made atonement for my sin. That is Jesus Christ the righteous. And he can make atonement for sin because he has never failed in any way. And he has given up his own life on my behalf to die the death that I deserve. To pay for my sins, to atone and make it right before God. Only Christ, because he has never sinned. Hebrews 7.27, Christ has no need like those high priests who offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people. Since he did this once for all when he offered up himself, church body, we've all sinned. Everybody will have to stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And if you think that you can atone for your sin, you will meet a death much worse than what they met in Exodus 32. But perhaps there is atonement. There's no perhaps. There is an atonement in the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who came, died, was raised from the dead to make you right before God this morning. Who is on the Lord's side? Who will get the atonement of Christ? Those who repent of their sins and trust and place their faith in Jesus Christ as the only atonement for sin. Who is on the Lord's side? Those who trust in Jesus and obey His instructions. Let's pray. God, we love You. And we come to Your Word asking that you would expose our sin, as Hebrews 4.13 says. Bring it to light, God. We cannot make an excuse and we cannot make atonement for what we have done. But God, we repent, confess it right now, and take refuge in Jesus Christ, who is the only atonement for our sin. Let us right now, God, offer up ourselves as living sacrifices by your Spirit living in obedience to what you have said, fighting against the sin of idolatry that so, so tempts us to give ourselves over to it. But Christ is better. It's in his name we pray these things. Amen.